This week on In-Depth, we spend the day at the Texas home of George Foreman. There's nothing wrong with being knocked down in life. It's about getting up. The oldest boxer ever to win the heavyweight championship of the world. The fondest memory from that fight would be what? People were cheering for me. People were praying for me. The Olympic gold medalist reflects on growing up poor in Houston's Fifth Ward, the resulting anger that fueled him in the ring. He wanted to kill Muhammad Ali. I'm gonna kill one of these fellows, then they'll shut up. And how the aftermath of one fight changed his life forever. And I realized I was about to die in a dirty old dressing room. All that's coming up next, right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. Yeah, I want to take you back to when you were a younger boy growing up. You, you were the, the fifth of seven children. Your mother really did everything she could to make ends meet. Uh, her husband maybe wasn't around as much as everybody would have liked. Uh, your biological father you learned about only later on in life. How scarce was food for you guys back then at the time? I've always been motivated by food because I was always hungry. There never was enough to eat for me. I was always hungry. And there was never enough food for various reasons. One lady is hard to take care of, what, six, seven kids at one time. How special were the uh, pancake Sundays every other Sunday? Well, my mother was just, she couldn't afford to have, what, three meals every day, but on Sundays there would be one meal that would last all days, and whatever she would fix would be just fine with us. Tell, tell about the hamburger on Fridays. Well, because my mother was a short-order cook, of course, there would always be a hamburger. Sometimes she'd afford to bring home one from a job, and she'd have to split that thing about five or six different pieces, and I can still taste that delicious burger it so many ways. Really? <laughs> uh, now, I mean, you would usually, I believe, have mayonnaise sandwiches for school. You'd bring them from home for the school lunch. But sometimes, I, I understand, you wouldn't be able to afford to bring lunch for yourself to school. So in those instances, what would you do with the brown paper bags? <laughs> and it's just such a shame when you're so poor. And you don't want everyone else to know that you're so poor. Really, you're not poor, you're poor. <laughs> and you, and uh, a couple of days would go to school, certain times, and you didn't want the kids to know how destitute you were. So you take a paper bag with a little grease on it and then show the kids, like, I ate my sandwich on the way to school. That's why I don't have any lunch today. You make preparation for those things. Hey, explain how the clothes that you wore to school impacted the education you got back then. Uh, a lot of times you just didn't want to go to school because you just didn't have the clothes and you hide. So you try to find a way to get something nice to wear for a few days and you go to school for a few days. Would the teachers focus less on you if you didn't have nice clothes? Well, in, in my younger days, it always seemed like if you had a lunch, nice clothes to wear daily, the teachers liked you more. They seemed to gravitate to you more. Those who didn't have, you can believe, they didn't have the teacher's uh, blessings as well, as well. Considering the area you grew up in, in the Fifth Ward, and how tough of a district it was, how much does it mean to you to now have a brand new school there? And there's something centrally located. Uh, that was a, a, a school, a youth center, 
All of that was right there in my midst. I didn't know how to appreciate it. Today, with the help of a lot of friends and families and people who've attended that school, it's the state of the arts now, one of the best schools, not only in the community, but in the state and in the world, right there after that. And I like to think that uh, I passed through those doors and, and I constantly make appearances that uh, tell children that it doesn't matter your beginnings, what you've had in life is what you want in life. And that school, Athens, represents that for me because now the best school is in my old neighborhood. And you mentioned what you said to children who you've spoken to, but you know, you're obviously representative of that. You mentioned the only school you graduated from being the elementary school, and you really struggled in school. Uh, somebody who's similarly facing difficulties, whether it be because lack of desire or the other outside influences that could uh, you know, create difficulties in school, what do you say to them? to you know, give them the encouragement that they can still have success in life? Yeah, that after an elementary school, is I point at it all the time. Even I point to my children, I take them past it. Look where I started. And it didn't stop me. As a matter of fact, this could have been a place where I learned to read, and the reading has become the best thing that ever happened to me. I've become a writer, a fighter, and all of that. But it doesn't matter where you're from, Take advantage of a good education, and you'll never go wrong. So very early on in, in your life, you win an Olympic gold medal. A few years after that, you become heavyweight champion of the world. And you've spoken about before how, you know, even though you were having all this professional success at that time, you were pretty angry. Looking back on that now, why do you think that was? Anger is something generally be just discontent. It all started with not having enough to eat growing up, looking for more and more to eat and not having that kind of satisfaction. Then all of a sudden, uh, you get into boxing where anger is applauded. I met Sonny Liston. He became my role model. And he was one of the, he had to be the most angry fellow I'd met. <laughs> He'd look right through you, scare you, and I thought, if I'm going to be successful in boxing, I'm going to have to learn how to utilize anger. And was that a motivating force, the anger? I don't think anger really motivates you. It's just a tool you think is, it's going to make you win. So, hey, I better get some. And, and you said something in our interview. We sat down uh, in 2007, several years back, where um, you said you were such a bad guy outside of the ring that people saw the best of you inside the ring. How so? Oh, when I was in the ring, you really saw the best of me outside the ring. I was really some terrible fellow because I did some things to people that mostly, in the ring, I'm not ashamed of my boxing matches, but outside the ring, some of the things we did, I did, I'm ashamed of to this day. What, what, what are some of the things that uh, you regret? Uh, I regret uh, really the way you treat people. There are a lot of people you meet and you think you're gonna know them for a lifetime. Then they pass away before you even get a chance to tell them you're sorry for that side of you that they saw. 
And I could go on and on with stories, but like I said, there's nothing to be proud of. Uh, speaking to kind of your mentality as a boxer back then, uh, you wrote about how you wanted to like kill Ken Norton in your fight with him, and then when that didn't happen, you wanted to kill Muhammad Ali in your fight with him, like literally kill. Why? Uh, you get to be heavyweight champ of the world. I've defeated Joe Frazier, had one title defense, and everyone knew that I had beaten the best in Joe Frazier. No doubt about it, I had beaten the best. People had something to say about that. I said, you know what? I'm going to kill one of these fellows. Then they'll shut up. And it wasn't about Ken Norton or Muhammad Ali. It was like anyone I'd met in the, met in the ring, I said, I'm going to kill one of these guys. Then they'll know that I'm the best. You been known as the hardest puncher ever. Um, you said that some punches, and just speaking in general terms, you said some punches are so ferocious that they don't hurt. They actually will interrupt communication between the tower and the ground, as you put it. Explain like what you mean. There was one, two boxes I faced in my career. They hit so hard, it didn't hurt. It was uh, Ron Lyle the first time. I remember thinking, I'm not hurt, why am I on the floor? And he knocked me down again. If only it had hurt, I would, have got, would not have gotten up. It just, it was like it, you are no longer the same person. You see your legs wiggle and you're not in control of yourself. Once again, Jerry Cooney hit me with a left hook way back into my second career. And I felt, it's gonna happen again. And I decided to get that fight over that time. You ever hit somebody uh, similarly hard where you could see that happen to them? I, my, my punching power was so, the first time around was so vicious that the second time around I wouldn't even throw those kind of punches anymore. And why, why was that? Because the first time around, as I told you, I'm going to kill one of these guys. I'm not going to, I decided the second time around I'm not going to kill anyone. This is a profession, and there was never a shot in anger. The rumble in the jungle against Muhammad Ali in Zaire, Africa. You said uh, in your book it featured more unexplained happenings than any event in your life. And I know you've rehashed you know, this on multiple times before, but the water that you were given by your trainer uh, shortly before you, you got into the ring. I, I explain um, what you think was done to it. Uh, I got into the ring and uh, generally I dry out, well, go without water. And just before a boxing match, my trainer would always say, all right, ready for your first sip of water? And he'd give me a nice drink of water. And that's how we'd need you ready for another and a piece of ice. We'd always done this. This night in Africa, the same water, same ceremony, here's your drink of water. I say, hey, this water tastes like medicine. And uh, my trainer, Dick Sadler, said, same water as always. And I didn't want to make him feel bad. So I took another drink. I said, man, this water has medicine in it. Same water as always. He said, look, I'm taking a drink. And I took an ice, and that was different. The water was different that night. Explain what happened during the ref's count when you were down that made you believe it was suspect. The, the fight, and uh, I lost the boxing match to Muhammad Ali. I got beat genuinely. I've got photographs where I'm on the canvas <laughs> and the referee counting over me. I lost that boxing match. 
Uh, I had a lot of complaints after that boxing match. The count, the, the, the ropes were too loose. Uh, the referee counted too fast. And I had something in my water. I have lots of excuses, but it still doesn't bring it back and make it a win. I've learned to live with that. Right, I mean, but even if you admit that Ali beat you and uh, would have beat you regardless, um, it is, though, still your belief that things happened that may have been less than honest or... Yeah, I've had a lot of victories, lots of victories. I even became champion of the world again. All of those victories, and I didn't seem to complain about anything after those victories. So I've learned now with the defeats, <laughs> let it alone. You um, wrote, wrote in your book, speaking to the... the depression that um, w was created from that bout at the time. I hadn't just lost the title, I'd lost what defined me as a man. How severely depressed did you become and how, how would you describe the emotional toll it took on you? I didn't just lose the title, I lost myself. I lost who I was. I defined myself at, at that time. I lost it all. How long did it take to get it back? It was years before I could really look in the mirror and say, I'm who I want to be. I think, of course, I found my religious religion and a place in this life that had nothing to do with boxing. That's when I really was totally restored. And you mentioned the, the picture that you have of yourself on the mat, the ref counting, Ali had knocked you down. Um, explain why you view that positively now. Oh, yeah, I, I became an evangelist full-time, got a new little house, three-bedroom. I was really happy with my place. And the only picture of my past uh, I displayed was a photograph of Muhammad Ali standing over me and my looking up being knocked down and losing the championship of the world. First of all, I was proud that I was in such a match. And secondly, there's nothing wrong with being knocked down in life. It's about getting up. Obviously, during your professional careers, you guys seemingly didn't have as close of a relationship. When did that start to change? I think that that's still probably a bad state in boxing where boxers learn to hate one another. You get a trainer, you get a manager, and he talks about, I'm going to, you're going to be heavyweight champ of the world. These other guys are not this. No one is that. And you bell ring and you hate these fellas. And you lose a lot of time with people who could have been your best friends, who have so much in common with you. We lost that early on with Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier, Ken Norton, and I. We could have been the best friends. Even our daughters are pretty much alike. To tell about what happened in the locker room, 28 years old, 1977 loss to Jimmy Young. Strange now, I fought my way. I had this hate. Boy, I had to be heavyweight champion of the world again. I was going to do anything to get it. Had to pay Muhammad Ali back specifically. So uh, the powers that be uh, put a fight on with Jimmy Young, an elimination fight with myself. The winner of this match would have, uh, Muhammad Ali would have an ultimatum to either face me or give up the title if I won the title. I got in the ring, and I wanted to prove to the world that I had, didn't have stamina problems, so I would go 12 rounds. Afterwards, I lost a 12-round decision. I didn't feel bad. Jimmy Young had won the boxing match. Went back into the dressing room, and that's when my life changed. 
Went back, uh, started walking, trying to cool off as normal. You don't have to worry about the box match. You're still George Foreman. You got money. You got cars. You could go to your ranch, retire, and die. And I'd never said a word like that before. Die. After a while, it started to multiply. Death. And I realized I was about to die in a dirty old dressing room when I had all these places to live in the world. Walked back and forward trying to keep my body in me because life is almost like a smile. You can just lose it. And as I was walking back and forward, heard a voice. I said, well, you George Foreman, um, you, you, you George, uh, George Foreman, you got a ranch and all of that. Why are you home and money? Why are you afraid to die? <laughs> and I'd been talking about, I used to go out and talk about religion to everywhere you know, about God, because I figured you can get some fans. Muhammad Ali had talked about Muslim. He got fans. I figured I was going to make, and the voice said, you believe in God. Why are you scared to die? I said, man, everybody believe in God, but I don't want to die. So I started walking back and forward, and I realized I was going to die. I said, look, I'm still George Foreman. To this voice, nobody, I'm thinking someone's in the room playing with me. I can still give money to charity and for cancer, and the voice answered me back, I don't want your money, I want you. And I remember, boom, tears poured, and I looked around the room and I tried to, exp but I figured if I tell them, they're gonna think I'm crazy. And I tried to make a deal, it didn't work, and I looked, my leg gave out of me, I looked around the room and I said, hey y'all, I'm fixing it before I can say another word. All of my life went out of me, my leg gave out of me, and I was in this deep, dark place. All around me was nothing. Like every sad thought if you multiplied them together, there was nothing, no hope. Like someone had dropped me in a deep sea and not a boat on an island anywhere. I got mad, because I'm the guy with lions and tigers. I didn't get scared, I said, I don't care if this is death, I still believe there's a God. When I said that, a gigantic hand reached in and pulled me out of nothingness. Just nothing, sadness. And I was alive in that dress room. Evidently, they picked me up off the floor and laid me on the table. And I remember saying, hey, I'm dying, everybody, but tell everybody I'm dying for God, because I'd been saved from the thing that I was most afraid of, death. And my doctor stood behind me. I said, Dr. West, move your hand, because the thorns on his head are making him bleed. And I saw blood coming down my forehead. No one else did. And I told my masseur, Mr. Fuller, move your hand. He's bleeding where they crucified him. And I started screaming, Jesus Christ is coming alive in me. And I didn't believe in religion. I thought it was for idiots. People who lo lose their girlfriends to go to church, people who lose their money to go to church. I had my money, still even still had a girlfriend. And <laughs> I, these are words that would yeah, never have come yeah, out of your mouth Jesus before Christ that. is coming alive in me. And I, and I jumped off the table. They tried to hold me down. I said, I gotta go tell the world. I gotta, I gotta clean myself. And I ran in the shower. And, and started screaming, hallelujah, I'm clean, born again. I went to, toward the door and they stopped me because I didn't have any clothes on. I said, I got to tell the world. And I've never stopped screaming that to this day. Why quit boxing? The punching bag had been Joe Frazier, Muhammad Ali, Ken Norton, uh, you, you name it. That's who I've been beaten. I went back to my home and that, that punching bag was a piece of leather, cloth. It wasn't anyone anymore. And I just, for 10 years, I didn't even make a fist. Became just telling that story. Next thing you know, they called me Rev, brother. I was ordained, an evangelist. 
And uh, I never intended to stop boxing. I just never went back. The the youth center uh, had the chance to the, the we had the chance to shoot some footage of it yesterday. How, how did the idea for that come about? I really didn't want to be in the business of the youth center. I was full time preacher at the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's all I wanted to do was be a preacher. But I noticed the kids weren't coming to church. I'd inquired about a kid that I'd seen earlier in the gym that was run by my brother. The kid had gone to jail, and I asked him, what happened? He said they were robbing the store. The store keep shot one of the kids, and the f kid I was interested in shot the store keep. All these lives were devastated because I was trying to show everybody what a great preacher I'd been. So I started the George Foreman Youth and Community Center, just a place for the kids to hang out. I don't preach to them. There's not a Bible on there for them. The idea is that I'm here for you, and that's why the George Foreman Youth Center. And you started it during uh, your, b before your comeback, a after you had retired the first time uh, from boxing. How's it evolved over the years? And it's strange because I didn't, I took money I had saved up. Sometimes when you realize you're in, you got trouble, I took my money and the biggest part was to get a foundation. The rest was to start a youth center and it took every dime I had to keep that place open. Money that I had set aside for my kids to live happily ever after. And uh, I just didn't think it would stay in existence. This was the reason I had gone back into boxing in the first place. The, the part of that youth center that you're most proud of would be what? Well, the youth center is there because there are a lot of people who've come into business and I'm going to help kids and I'm going to raise money and they're no longer there. <laughs> so the, the part that I'm most proud of is that it's there. You made a substantial amount of money during your first boxing career before the decade-long retirement, but by the end of that decade-long retirement before you came back, how much money had you gone through and how close were you to being out of it? I'd made millions in my first career, literally millions of dollars. And by the time uh, 10 years had gone by, I realized that I wanted to do a lot of good and it took money to do it. I did a lot of things with money and I looked up and didn't have the kind of money I wish I had. And that was one of the reasons I had to make a comeback to boxing. I was no longer the wealthy boxer who had undertaken being an, uh, an evangelist. To what extent was that largely the, the reason, the, the fact that you, you wanted funding for the youth center? And uh, One day I was out playing basketball with one of my attorneys. And, and he wanted, we were playing ball, but he wanted to be serious with me and didn't know what to do. He said, George, you have this place, but you gotta be careful. You may become one of those bad stories like Joe Lewis guy who had so much money and lost everything. And you know, this place is costing you a lot of money, the George Foreman Youth Center. And I thought about, I'd had Rolls Royce, convertible, I had swimming pools and homes. And here it is, I'm worried about having funds for this place that these kids need me. And that's when I decided I was gonna have to do something, raise some money. And I decided right then, I know how to get money. I'm gonna be heavyweight champion of the world again. That's how I was getting money from my youth center. You were no longer able to use anger as a motivating force, as we spoke about. How did that impact things for you as you got back into boxing? 
The, f the first time around, I was angry, and I just didn't care. I mean, people booed me, and it was great because they were booing the right guy. I was a bad fella. The second time around, I had 10 years to make friends with people. Uh, you know, I thought you had to be rich and famous for people to like you. People would actually give me a booster when my battery had gone down, and I'd try to pay them, get out of here, biggin'. I'm offered the last piece of meat at the butcher store. Give it to the big guy. A steward uh, would come up uh, in, the, in the plane and say, we can give you a bigger seat, big guy, but we can't give you a meal. All these people were kind to me, and I didn't have anything. They didn't even know who George Foreman was. They were kind. The second time around, I had all of this kindness to pay back, and it was very easy to change temperaments because of that. Uh... 45 years old, you end up winning the bout to become heavyweight champion of the world, oldest ever. Uh, 20 years after you had lost to Muhammad Ali in Zaire, the fondest memory from that fight would be what? I'm in the ring fighting Michael Moore for the championship of the world, and once again, I expected people were cheering for me. People were praying for me. Second time, first time around, everybody was praying for the other guy. Now, I'm a victim of prayer. And the fight is over. I get a knockdown the 10th round. I looked around, satisfied my fans, because I said I was going to come back not for money, but to be heavyweight champ of the world. That's how I'm going to get my money. So I looked up. And I said, if I win this thing, I'm just, I never talk religion on television, but I said, if I win this thing, I'm going to get on my knees and thank God right there. And I did. I got on my knees, and I thank God right on the spot. Explain the importance of family to you. Well, I have a family of 10 kids, by the way, and uh, almost 10 grandkids. Family is most important to me. You, you accumulate a lot of things, you do a lot of things, but at some point you look up and say, it was all for family. You forget that you had all these personal goals way back. It's all about family. And I get a chance to share my life with them now. This is very special. This is, all, this is my life now, family. You found out who your biological father was much later on in life. And you've said that played a role in the decision to name all of your sons, George. I explain why. Yeah, you look around for some roots and you can't find anything, so you decide you better plant something. I met my biological dad. I was already been heavyweight champ of the world and a grown man, and, uh, and I didn't want my kids to be in that position. I wanted them to have something in common, and I figured why not give them a name, George Edward Foreman. They're all called the same. And I tell them, if one goes up, we all go up. If one gets in trouble, we're all in trouble. It's a family name. And uh, you don't have to change your name. Never anyone have to change the name, but change their ways. And I tell them, either live up to the name or change it. <laughs> well, and because all of their names are George, they, they also have nicknames. Um, yeah. And I, told, I would tell my wife, she said, you need to stop boxing. I said, the day I forget one of my boys' names, name. I'll stop boxing. So what, let's hear it. Can you remember George all the names? George Foreman, they're all named George. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, you give, give your kids something that we have now. We all have a name, and that's very important. And it's up to them if they prefer to keep it. I don't want them looking around for their dad or their brothers as I did. Tell about going to Barbados uh, many years back secretly 
to take back two of your kids that were um, unbeknownst to you taken by your then wife there? Yeah, look up one day and I, I woke up one day and, and I came home and all my kids were gone. I had two kids just disappeared, a son and a daughter, and I couldn't find them. Found out they were in a small island called St. Lucia in the West Indies. I rented a plane. I couldn't afford all of these. I flew to Barbados, and I sat there in Barbados, then rented a private plane for St. Lucia. I remember even having to keep the pilot wake with coffee and have a friend of mine make certain he didn't get drunk again so he can fly us into the island and fly us back. And uh, when I got there to get the kids, all I did wanted to bring them back home because the one thing I had not forgotten is that you're looking for your family, it can be the most harsh thing in the world. And I knew they knew who they were then. I didn't want to lose this. So I had to literally steal my kids, get on a boat, charter a boat that didn't work that very well, sail all the way to uh, other islands, then back into Barbados, then back into the United States of America. How tense was the moment when you got your kids and you were back at your hotel and then people showed up at the door? Yeah, you get your children, you're back at the hotel and I look out and there were a, a load of policemen. They were soldiers actually and a truckload of them with bullets around them telling me to let the kids go. And I remember screaming, I'm not letting my kids go. These are Americans. These are my children. Oh, then you realize you have a name then, an American. And they didn't take my kids. They gave me the next day to get things straight. And the next day, I was back in the United States of America. And was there concern at that time? You didn't know what these guys were going to do. I heard someone, I said, to get my kids, you're going to have to kill me. And I heard someone say, kill him then. That's actually how you met your current wife, Joan. Um, You know, she was the caretaker for. Yeah, your kids when they were in Barbados. Joan, um, fifth wife, uh, you've been married, I, I think, around 30 years. Why do you think, having been married before, um, this marriage has been so successful when, you know, the other one struggled? In, in the past, I'd get married, and I, I always thought that someone needed me. I'm George Foreman. They need me. But when I met my current wife, my wife, Mary, call her Joan, I needed her, and I know I need her, and she's always known that I needed her, and that's the difference. The George Foreman Grill, to what extent has it changed your life? Well, we were doing, I'd really gotten popular on Madison Avenue. We'd done Doritos, McDonald's, and Meineke. Every commercial there was, we made a lot of money. People would pay you a lot of money to do a commercial. But then after a period of time, Kentucky Fried, they move on to someone else. And finally, uh, a friend of mine said, George, you're making all these other companies wealthy. Why don't you get your own product? I said, sure, how much are you going to pay me? They said, no, 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 no. We're not going to pay you. Get your own product. And we looked around and found uh, the, the grill, this grill, not in this current farm. And we formed a, a joint venture together. And how did you go about even finding it, though? Uh, I told them, they said, why don't you get, they said, let's look around for something. Sam Perlmutter and Henry Holmes, a few other guys. We started looking for a great product, and we found one. No one wanted to be bothered with it at all, this thing. 
you know, no, they had names for it, jokes for it. Mm -hmm. But I took it and they said, try that. And I didn't want to use it, but my wife insisted. She said, it works, George. And the grease really rolled off and it's still tender. I ate it. I said, boy, let's do it. We formed a joint venture, which means I'd have to lie and share, but I'd have to make it prominent. I'd have to go out and promote it. And I did without money. Nobody put up any money for me to do it. And that's how the joint venture came about. It was a guy by the name of Henry Holmes who comes up with a joint venture idea. At, at what point did you know you were on to something? I did the agreement. The thing worked so well. And I said, I, give me 16 of the grills. I give one to my mom, my aunt, my cousin and put them into my training camps. And that's all I thought would happen because they work so well. I never expected it to be so successful. I got a check once for like $1,500. I said, what? Couldn't believe it. Really? Then I got another check for 15,000. And then all of a sudden the checks just started rolling in. That, that, that this thing sold over 100 million. Right, and to give the check some context too, you end up being bought out, I think, for something like $140 million after what you had already made. Is it true? I mean, at one point, checks were coming in for upwards of like $4 million monthly? $5 million. $5 million so, monthly, uh, but before but, the $140 million yeah, buyout. Before, uh, I, was, uh, I fought uh, my last boxing match in Atlantic City, and everyone said, you were robbed. You were robbed, George. They were booing the fight. And there, my attorney had brought me a check for $1 million royalty on the grill. I said, that's not what we call being robbed. <laughs> In my day, when you were robbed, you didn't have anything. How did the money that you made from the grill, and it almost seems a stupid question to ask, but how did the money you made from the grill compare to what you made during your boxing career? People ask me to compare the money I made in the grill and the money I made in the boxing, and you really can't because they're tied into one. Hmm. Without boxing, I never could have had anything, nothing. I think I'm real thankful for being an athlete and have a chance to compete in sports because without that, I never would have done anything. How would you explain the importance of being a good salesperson? And I, I, when I left boxing, I was so sad because that was, I concentrated all those years and I needed to make a living. But I'd go out on the street corners and I'd try to sell Jesus Christ. And most of the time, people were going somewhere and coming somewhere and they didn't want to hear. And I said, I'm going to sell this product. And I learned to sing. I'd jump and dance on the street and they would pay attention. I learned to sell. And I realized if I could sell myself to being the heavyweight champ of the world, I can sell anything if it's trustworthy. And that's what I'm most happy about. And I am a natural salesman. That's what I do. Salesperson galore, that's me. Boxing today, um, what impact do you think UFC is having on the sport? I think that boxing is great, but you, get a, you match two great boxers together. No one gets knocked down. No one, get, no one gets cut. No one gets knocked out and it leaves room for the UFC. People loan for a good fight. And if you keep giving them nice boxing matches, the UFC will grow and grow and grow. The impact, boxing has had more impact on things coming up than anything else. How would you compare the strength of the sport today to 
when you boxed? I mean, if you, if every boxing match, world title match, would have ended like George Foreman, Run Lyle, heavyweight title match, there wouldn't be any UFC. <laughs> there wouldn't be anything, MMA. There wouldn't be anything. But boxing has constantly, from time to time, gone into another range where people don't know what it is. It's like one is scared and the other is glad of it. Those boxing matches uh, have taken boxing down. And currently, the heavyweight champ of the world, he wins boxing matches, but you know, no one knows, no one pays any attention. Really a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger. And visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. Also, don't forget to check out our YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash Graham Bensinger for hours of extra content. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.